For those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this wonderful Gospel, we come this morning to John chapter 6, verse 1, and my goal uh, this morning is to cover verses 1 through 15 of John 6, and the title of the message is, Jesus Feeds the 5,000. Jesus feeds the 5,000. I want to encourage you to write down a reference, Exodus 24:11. Exodus 24:11. In Exodus chapter 24, God called Moses and the elders of Israel to come up on Mount Sinai to worship him from a distance, he specified. And so Moses and the elders did what God said, and in Exodus 24, verse 11, the text says, and I quote, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank, unquote. What a privileged moment this had to have been for these nobles and for Moses and Joshua uh, to be able to see God in whatever form he chose to reveal himself and to literally be allowed to eat and drink in the very presence of God and to live to tell about that experience. Well, in our passage today, we're going to see God in the flesh, God come to earth and in the flesh, and we're going to see him upon a mountain. And we will see him miraculously feeding thousands of people so that they could feast, so that they could eat in his very presence. These people are undeserving of this kindness from God. They're not even going to respond properly to this provision, this miraculous provision that Jesus provides for them, and yet Jesus shows his kindness, his lavish kindness to them anyway. What we see in our passage today is what we can safely call Jesus' most talked about miracle. You'll be interested to know that this is the only miracle that Jesus performed in his public ministry that is talked about in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because John's gospel was written long after the other three gospels were written, uh, it seems that John felt burdened to cover material that was not covered by the other three gospels. And yet, even though that's evident throughout his gospel, John still feels that it is important to revisit this story of Jesus feeding of the 5,000, and thankfully, as John does so, he takes the opportunity to add some details that are not mentioned in the other three Gospels. This miracle that we're going to see today performed by Jesus is not only Jesus' most talked about miracle, but in terms of the number of people who are immediately affected by it. This is the largest miracle on the grandest scale that Jesus ever performed, and it shows us 
the staggering goodness of Jesus and his power to satisfy overwhelmingly the hunger of man. As we look at our passage this morning, if you have a hard copy of the notes uh, with you, we're going to work through the passage and observe seven developments in John's unfolding account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And the first of these developments, we can word it this way, is a large crowd is following Jesus because of the signs of healing that he was doing. A large crowd is following Jesus because of the signs of healing that he was doing. If you want to know how did the crowd gather in the first place and why, this is the answer. Observe what John says beginning in verse 1. He says, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. The these things that John is speaking of here is referring to the events of chapter 5 that we studied a few weeks ago when Jesus was in Jerusalem healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda and engaging with the religious leaders after that healing, these leaders who wanted to kill him. Evidently, from there, Jesus had returned to the region of Galilee and is now traveling to the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And notice in verse 1, the words went away. It says, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. From Mark's gospel, we learn that upon his return to Galilee with his disciples, Jesus sent out his disciples to go out and minister to the people. And we learned in Mark's gospel that while the disciples were out on this mission, they were casting out demons and they are healing people with the power that Jesus had no doubt given to them, along with preaching the kingdom, preaching repentance to the people. And all the while, Jesus is doing the same thing in the region of Galilee. And it is evident that this ministry of the disciples as they were going around and Jesus in this region is rousing the interest of the Galileans in Jesus, causing many of them to seek him out wherever he is. And this actually feeds into the reason why John tells us in verse 1 that Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which was a less densely populated area. John's language here implies what Mark's gospel makes clear, and that is that Jesus is wanting an opportunity for him and his disciples to get away from the crowds. In Mark 6, you can write this reference down, Mark 6, verses 31 and 32, as Mark is telling this story, Mark says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while, and then in parentheses, in Mark's gospel, it says, For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Now, that's what Mark's gospel says. 
And that secluded place is on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee near Bethsaida, where we find them here in John's gospel. So Jesus and his disciples make this trip, but observe what happens in verse 2. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And so they're trying to get away, but they can't get away from the crowds. And thankfully, Jesus was not irritated by the crowds that were hounding him. Again, in Mark 6, verse 34, Mark tells us that Jesus felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So they're trying to find a place for a retreat. The crowd follows them to this secluded place of retreat. Jesus seizes the opportunity to teach them many things. Yes, this crowd is coming to him because of the miracles that they're seeing him perform, but Jesus uses the opportunity to minister to their spiritual needs and to teach them many things that they needed to know. And this crowd, we'll see, has more than just spiritual needs. They also have physical needs that Jesus is thinking about also. And this brings us to the second development in John's account of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Number two, Jesus gets Philip to calculate the cost of feeding the crowd. Jesus gets Philip to calculate the cost of feeding this crowd. Observe what John says that Jesus does in verse 3. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, perhaps this elevated spot was chosen because it offered Jesus some alone time with his disciples, but this spot would have also provided a vantage point from which Jesus and his disciples could survey the scene that was developing below. As for the time of year that it is, in John 4, John says, or in verse 4, John says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. As many of you know, the Passover happened uh, at any time in late March or uh, in the first half of April. So John is telling us that we're right now in the spring of the year. And it was during the Passover that the Jews would celebrate their deliverance from the oppression of Egypt. So as you can imagine, the Passover season was a time in which nationalistic fervor ran high in the hearts of the Jewish people, causing them to long all the more for the day in which they might be freed from the tyranny of Rome. And we're going to see by the time we're done this morning how these nationalistic feelings will actually give shape to the way that the crowd is going to respond to Jesus feeding them the way that he does. Looking back at the story as John tells it, as Jesus is sitting with his disciples on an elevated spot, it seems that the crowd eventually figures out where he was and they started clamoring their way toward him. So observe what happens 
beginning in verse 5. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Philip was an ideal person for Jesus to ask this question of, given the fact that he was from Bethsaida. And we learned that back in John chapter 1, verse 44. And this is in the general area where they are right now. So Jesus is saying, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Why did Jesus ask this question? Well, in verse 6, John says, this he was saying to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus was not asking Philip this question because he was entertaining the possibility of purchasing food for this multitude. He was asking Philip this question in order to surface Philip's thoughts and to see where Philip's thoughts would go when pondering the possibility of feeding such a great crowd of people. Jesus is evidently wanting Philip to look at the crowd, to size up the crowd, and to see the massive scope of the problem before them. And Jesus is wanting Philip and the disciples to see, I think, their inability to address this need. And Philip certainly does. Observe his answer in verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth the bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Jesus is asking Philip about where they could buy bread. Philip doesn't even bother answering Jesus' question. Evidently, Philip saw no need to discuss the matter of where to buy food because the suggestion was simply out of the range of economic possibility. So he said to Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to even receive a little, just a snack of bread for each person. 200 denarii is not sufficient amount of money. A denarius was a day's wage for a normal worker in this day. So 200 denarii is essentially eight months of an average worker's wages. Imagine how much money you make in eight months. And you will have an idea of how costly such a project felt to Philip. In fact, if we just go with California's minimum wage, um, uh, as it stands presently, eight months of wages is a little over $20,000. Philip may have thought, of the 200 denarii amount because that may have been the amount of money that the disciples had on hand. But either way, 200 denarii, according to Philip, wasn't enough to even buy sufficient bread for everyone to have just a little snack of bread. And that doesn't even include the cost of a meat product that could 
serve to make the meal complete. And I really want you to notice Philip's orientation here. He's not even considering the possibility of a full meal for this crowd. He's only thinking of the bare minimum here. He's thinking of what it might take for everyone to have just a little. And he's realizing that they don't even have enough money for that. It's not even in his mind the thought of a full, satisfying meal for everyone in which everyone has all that they would want to eat. And I think this is part of the testing of Philip that Jesus is seeking to accomplish here. And when you read the other gospel accounts, it seems evident that Philip is not the only one with this mindset. In Mark chapter 6, verses 35 and 36, Mark says, When it was already quite late, his disciples came to Jesus and said, This place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. These words represent the conclusion that the disciples reached likely after Jesus had asked Philip his question about where they could buy sufficient bread for everyone. And so they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, just send everyone home. This problem that you're posing is too big for us. The needs of the people to eat are too great for us to even begin to meet. So send them away and let them figure out a way to meet their own needs. Remember that according to Mark chapter 6 and verse 31, the disciples have not even had time to eat themselves, right? So it seems like they are in no mood to even think about how to feed 5,000 plus people. They just want these people gone, probably so that these disciples can then figure out how they're going to grab a bite for themselves, finally. They're not just hungry, they're probably hangry. And they're not in a good place right now for entertaining this opportunity that Jesus is putting before them. Well, thankfully, Jesus is not content with Philip's reply, nor with the insistence of his disciples to send the people away. Observe the third development in John's account of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Number three, let's word it this way. Andrew dejectedly produces a lad who has five loaves and two fish. Andrew dejectedly produces a lad who has five loaves and two fish. According to Matthew chapter 14, verse 16, after the disciples told Jesus to send the people away so that they could get their own food, Jesus said to his disciples, and I quote, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And in giving them this crazy command, Jesus is calling upon these disciples to do something that was humanly impossible for them to do because they had nothing to give. 
They're hungry themselves. This moment teaches us that Jesus often gives us commands to give to others that we simply don't in and of ourselves have to give, but which forces us to lean on him and receive from him what he wants to give to them through us. Does that make sense? In such moments, Jesus says to us, you know, we want Jesus to send people away that, you know, their burdens are too great for us. But Jesus says to us, no, these people with needs do not need to go away. You give them what they need, to which we reply, but Jesus, I don't have what they need, to which he replies, but I do. And if you let me, I can supply their need through you. In Mark chapter 6, verse 37, the disciples at this point said to Jesus, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? So they're thinking logistics of how they can carry out this command. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says to them in reply, how many loaves do you have? And it seems like the disciples just stood there dumbfounded. So Jesus says to them in Mark 6, 38, at the end of the verse, go, look. And so evidently they went and they looked and they went through the crowd looking for food. And according to John, it seems that Andrew, Jesus' disciple, found a little bit of food. So observe what happens in verses 8 and 9 of John 6, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? We learn from Matthew 14, verse 17, that this was the only food that the disciples found. Jesus told them to go and look and it seems like they did. And according to Matthew 14, 17, the other disciples chimed in with Andrew, saying to Jesus, we have here only five loaves and two fish. So this is all the food that they found after Jesus had told them to go look. The other gospel writers simply tell us regarding the food that was found, that there were five loaves. But John lets us know something that we don't learn from the other Gospels, telling us that these were barley loaves. In the first place, a loaf uh, back in this day is not what we think of when we think of a loaf of bread a loaf in this day would have basically been a biscuit, maybe about four or five inches in diameter. And then think of five of such biscuits for what we will learn later is 5,000 men plus women and children. As the commentators Carter and Redberg say, and I quote, that's 1,000 men per loaf. Imagine 5,000 men show up for a breakfast and there are five biscuits for the whole group. That's the situation here. 
these commentators say. On top of that, barley bread was not even the best kind of bread anyway. Barley was considered the food of the poor. Barley was cheaper than wheat, and therefore it was typically used for feeding cattle, not humans. The ancient writer Philo speaks about barley as, and I quote, a food stuff of somewhat doubtful merit suited for irrational animals and men in unhappy circumstances, unquote. Given the fact that barley bread was the food of the poor, the fact that this lad has Five biscuits of barley bread indicates that he was very likely from a family that was poor. And as far as the bread he brings to Jesus, this wasn't even the highest quality bread that could have been brought. Beyond that, the Greek word translated fish that John uses here is a different word than the word that the other gospel writers use. John uses the word that speaks of a little fish. Some commentators translate this as a tidbit of fish. At the very least, this word speaks of small fish, which had no doubt, as they would have done in this day, been pickled and salted to make it more tasty and to stay fresh longer. All in all, guys, everything about this situation screams inadequacy. The person who had the food was not a man, but a boy, and not just a boy, but literally a little boy. He had only five biscuits, and they were barley biscuits at that. And he has only two fish, and they were small fish at that. And there are 5,000 men who need to be fed, in addition, as we're going to see, to women and children who are on this scene. So it's no wonder that Andrew says to Jesus in verse 9, what are these for so many people? You and I might fault Andrew for asking this question of Jesus, but keep in mind in the first place that these disciples, they're learning and they're growing and they're stumbling a bit in their faith, just like we often do. And you got to give Andrew credit here. At least he's bringing his doubtful question to the right person, right? Andrew has serious doubts here, but he's bringing his doubts to the exactly right person. And Jesus is the one you and I ought to bring our doubts and our questions to. As for the response that Andrew is no doubt expecting from Jesus, I think Andrew was probably hoping and maybe fully expecting that Jesus would look at this little lad's provision of five biscuits and two small fish and say, Ooh, yeah, you're right, Andrew. This is nothing in the face of so vast a need. So let's just dismiss the crowd and let them fend for themselves and feed themselves. This is not what Jesus does, which brings us to the fourth development in this amazing account of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Number four, from the lad's provision, Jesus feeds 5,000 men as much as they want. 
From the lad's provision, Jesus feeds 5,000 men as much as they want. Observe what happens in verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Literally, in the Greek, Jesus is telling the disciples to have the people recline, meaning have the people recline for a meal. Typically, the posture for eating in this day was lying on one side, propped up by one elbow, And this is the posture that Jesus is telling the disciples to go to the crowd and tell them to assume. In other words, Jesus is telling the disciples to tell the crowd to recline and be ready to receive a meal. And to their credit, the disciples seem to have done just that. In verse 10, John says, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And the Greek word translated men here is the word that speaks of men, as in males. Matthew's gospel tells us that this number was apart from women and children who were also present. And Matthew specifies that in Matthew 14, verse 21. So who knows what the total number of people on this occasion were. We know it was at least 5,000, and we know that there were women and children above that. So you can do the math as to how many that means. The number that John leaves us with is 5,000 men. Anyway, once everyone is seated, observe what Jesus does in verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. So Jesus takes the loaves. He gives thanks to the Father for the loaves. Mark tells us that Jesus looked up into heaven when he gave thanks, indicating that heaven was the source of this provision of the loaves and the fish and that heaven will be the source of the provision to come. By the way, we learn from Jesus' example here that we should receive food with thanksgiving as a gift from the hand of God in heaven. When you, before you eat, pause to acknowledge God and give thanks to him for your food, you are being Christ-like because that's what Jesus does here. Once Jesus had given thanks, John tells us that he distributed the bread to those who were seated, and it might seem to us that, well, he just directly gave the bread to everyone and did not use his disciples, but very importantly, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6, verse 41, that Jesus kept giving the food to the disciples to set before the people. So yes, Jesus was ultimately serving the food to the people, but he was doing that. He was giving the food to everyone through the agency of his 12 disciples. And then we're told that Jesus did the same thing with the fish. And we are told that the distribution of the bread and the fish ended up getting out to 5,000 plus people. 
as much as they wanted, as you see at the end of verse 11. So everyone here gets as much food as they desired. They, they didn't just each get a little, they got as much food as they desired. No one in this crowd was left thinking, man, a, another piece of bread, another piece of fish would be nice. No, they all got what they wanted. There have been multiple times in my life when I have been enjoying a meal at someone's house or just a meal that someone has provided and I, I've wanted more food. Uh, but I didn't want to be rude. I didn't want to look like a pig. Uh, so I didn't take as much as I would have wanted to take. But in this case, no one was left feeling that way. Everyone got as much food as they desired. Whatever the shape and scope of their desire was, that's what they got. That's what they ate. And Jesus saw to that because that's the kind of host that Jesus is. We learn in verse 12 that by the time everyone was done eating, everyone was filled. In other words, everyone ate exactly as much as they wanted to the point of fullness such that they no longer desired another bite of bread or of fish. This miracle by Jesus shows us the expansive goodness of Jesus and the power of Jesus. And it shows us that no matter how big your appetite may be, it is no match for Jesus. 5,000 plus people's appetites on this occasion are no match for Jesus. He can meet that need with no trouble at all. So looking at this miracle thus far, we learned that there's enough provision for everyone to get food. And there wasn't just enough for everyone to have a little. There was enough for everyone to eat to their complete fullness and satisfaction. And it's even better than that. Observe what happens next in John's account of Jesus feeding of the 5,000. Number five, Jesus has his disciples gather leftovers until they filled 12 baskets. Jesus has his disciples gather leftovers until they filled up 12 baskets. Observe what happens in verse 12. When they, speaking of the 5,000 men plus women and children, were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. Jesus obviously intentionally made more food than was needed for this particular crowd. And we may at first wonder why did he do this, but we get a hint when Jesus speaks to his disciples and tells them, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So the disciples do what Jesus says. Observe what happens in verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. The word baskets here likely refers to a small 
basket that could be carried in a person's hand and that a person would typically use to carry his provisions for a journey of two or three days. Just imagine, as it were, a little bit of an oversized lunch pail with provision uh, for a few days. As for how many of these baskets there were to fill up, John tells us that the number was 12, which makes sense because it was Jesus' 12 disciples that Jesus had told to go and gather up the uneaten food, and each of these disciples would have had a basket as their own personal lunch pail. And John tells us here that the disciples filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. They didn't just find something that they could put in their individual baskets. They filled their baskets stuffed their baskets with food. You will recall from earlier in Mark 6, 41, that the disciples were so busy doing ministry to the crowds in Galilee that they didn't have time to eat. So it seems here that Jesus is providing for their needs and giving them a basketful of provision for each of them to enjoy for that day and over the next few days. And Jesus, interestingly, had the disciples gather up this provision from the very people that they had just fed, which shows the kind of back and forth caring for one another that pleases him. Jesus wanted his disciples to receive their provision, it seems, from the people that they had ministered to. At the very least, this extra provision is Jesus' way of letting them know the greatness of his power in the face of human need. These disciples had earlier thought that this situation was way too big for even Jesus to handle. And now they're observing that Jesus' power and and Jesus' provision is greater than the people were even able to handle or consume. And they're learning that Jesus is making sure that their own needs, the needs of the disciples, are being met as they engage in serving others. There's no doubt that the disciples are learning a hugely valuable lesson. But how does the crowd respond? Well, this brings us to the sixth development. Number six, the crowd concludes that Jesus is the prophet foretold. The crowd concludes that Jesus is the prophet foretold. Observe what John says in verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So evidently, everyone in this crowd knows that a miracle has happened and that Jesus has performed this miracle and they see it legitimately as a sign which is pointing to something that is true about Jesus. And John tells us that they are saying this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Their language indicates that they do not merely believe that Jesus is a prophet, That would have been amazing enough. 
but that he is the prophet, more specifically, the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the prophet that God promised in Deuteronomy 18 that he would send who would be like Moses. You can write down the reference Deuteronomy 18 verses 17 through 18 where God says to Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. We learned in chapter four that the Samaritans believed and it seems that the Galileans also believe that this Moses-like prophet whom God sends would be the Messiah. And the people are right now looking at Jesus' miracle and concluding that Jesus must be that Moses-like deliverer, Messiah, prophet that God promised that he would send into the world under Moses, they had a miraculous supply of manna, and now it seems that under Jesus, they have a miraculous supply of food as well. And it's at this point that the thinking of the crowd takes a predictable and dangerous turn. If under Moses, they had a miraculous supply of food, and if Moses was the one through whom God delivered them from the oppression of Egypt with great signs and wonders. And if Jesus has now supplied them miraculously with food and done many other signs and wonders on top of that, then maybe this Jesus can be their deliverer from Rome. And maybe right now is the time. After all, this is Passover season, which celebrates our deliverance from Egypt many centuries ago. So imagine how this crowd of people would be putting two and two together and coming to some fast conclusions during this Passover season when their nationalistic fervor is running at its peak suddenly you realize that this could actually be an explosive situation which brings us to the final development in John's account of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Number seven, Jesus withdraws. Jesus withdraws from the crowd that desires to take him as their king. Jesus withdraws from the crowd that desired to take him as their king. Observe what John says in verse 15. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. If you read the other gospel accounts like Matthew and Matthew 14, verse 13, you realize that this event is happening very soon after word began to spread 
about Herod Antipas, who ruled over Galilee, killing John the Baptist. So the likelihood is that these Galileans, they want to take Jesus by force as their king, rather than Herod, who ruled over them as a puppet of Rome. And these 5,000 men, they want to be Jesus' soldiers in an uprising against Herod. And then, no doubt, to go from there to throw off the oppression of Rome and establish his kingdom on earth. Notice that this crowd is intending to come and take him by force to make him king. They aren't really thinking so much about what Jesus wants here as much as they're thinking about what they want from Jesus. They are wanting to take Jesus and make him fit in to their own agenda and to serve their own purposes, which is the age-old tendency that plagues all of us. But upon perceiving their intentions, John tells us that Jesus withdrew. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Jesus will one day be king, but not in this way, and not on this day, for his journey to his throne must first go through a cross. From a human standpoint, this is a moment of temptation for Jesus, very much like what he experienced in the wilderness, yet Jesus amazingly does not give in to the temptation If Jesus could just keep doing miracles like this at will, multiplying food to feed the people who followed him, he could easily have a 5,000-man army right here with many thousands more to come. He could have a massive army ready to do whatever he wanted them to do, and the kingdoms of this world could soon be his. But John tells us that with the people now clamoring to make him king, Jesus walks away from that opportunity, that temptation, and he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The other gospel writers say that he withdrew to pray. Jesus was not about to let this crowd make him fit into their agenda. As John MacArthur says, even today, Jesus continues to withdraw from those who seek him for their own self-serving ends, just as he did from the crowd that sought to make him king on their own terms. Well, Lord willing, we're going to pick up here next Sunday, but let's just ponder a few things as we collect our thoughts uh, this morning. For starters, we do learn in this amazing story that Christ can do much with little. Amen? This is just a little boy, and yet this little boy who has the food figures as a critical figure in this amazing story told by all four gospel writers and what he has to offer is such little quantity in the face of such a great need yet Christ was able to use what this little boy brings to accomplish what turned out to be the most recorded miracle 
in Jesus' ministry. And it wasn't, as I said earlier, just a boy. It was a little boy. Young people, do not underestimate how much Christ can use you, not just in a future day, but even now when you are young. Do not ever underestimate how much God can use you to be a blessing to other people even now. Beyond this boy, we think of the meager provision of food that he brought to Jesus and how Jesus did so much with five barley biscuits and two small fish. And that ought to encourage all of us. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't feel like you have much gifting or knowledge as other people may have or resources like other people have, but be encouraged by what Jesus does here. Even the smallest offering in the hand of Jesus, surrendered to him, can accomplish much. Maybe you wish you were more gifted than you are, but how about you bring what you think are your small tidbits of gifting to Jesus and surrender those small giftings to him and let yourself be an instrument in his hands if you do this, you will discover that Jesus can do more with a small gift in his hands than with a far greater gifting that is not yielded to him. Also, this miracle that we see in our passage this morning uh, serves as a sign that points to a truth and that truth is that Jesus himself is the bread of life who can so fulfill the appetite of our soul that so long as we keep coming to him and believing in him, we will never hunger or thirst for anything else again. And we're going to see Jesus making this lesson very clear by the time this chapter is concluded. And yet, we're also going to see that sadly, the people who were blessed by this miracle are going to follow after Christ in order to get more physical bread from him, in order to get more miracles from him, failing to appreciate that he himself is the bread. They're going to want what they can get from Jesus more than they will want Jesus himself. And I would urge you, not to be like them. Yes, Jesus gives us many blessings that we give thanks to him for, but never forget that Jesus himself is God's greatest gift to you. And if you're here today and you have never believed in Jesus, look to him, call upon his name, believe in him, not only as your Lord and as your Savior, but as the bread of life that you need to satisfy the hunger of your soul. Believe Jesus when he says to you what he says in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He who continually is coming to me and is continually believing in me will never hunger or thirst because Jesus 
can satisfy the appetites of our soul. Jesus, it may be, is daring you this morning to bring the appetites of your soul to him. And he's promising to satisfy those needs for time and for eternity if you would but come to him. And think about it, guys. No one else can make this kind of promise, but Jesus does. And he wants his feeding of the 5,000 plus to stand as proof positive to you that he can make good on that promise and satisfy the hunger and the thirst of your soul. On another front, we should also think of the impact of this miracle on Jesus' disciples and how this miracle would have prepared them for future ministry as they led the church in the coming years. The commentator Carl Laney says, through this miracle, Jesus was teaching the disciples that although they were inadequate in themselves to meet human needs, they would find their sufficiency in Christ, unquote. The disciples are learning here that rather than sending people away because their needs are so great, they should move towards such needs and look to Christ to enable them to meet the impossible needs of others, knowing that Christ's provision will end up proving more than sufficient. And I have to think that the disciples in the months and years to come thought back on this exact miracle on the day of Pentecost when Jesus hands them 3,000 people in one day. That's a wonderful thing, but that would freak out any spiritual leader. 3,000 in one day. Here, shepherd this. Meet the needs of these 3,000. And then by the time we get to Acts chapter 4, verse 4, we are told that the number of the men who had been saved came to 5,000. And these disciples no doubt looked over that sea of converted humanity with all of their brokenness that still remain and the vastness of their needs. And they would have remembered this miracle and been encouraged that though they felt inadequate in and of themselves to meet the needs of these people that Jesus was bringing to them somehow, some way, Jesus, who is with us, will meet the needs of this growing congregation through us. So this feeding of the 5,000, when it comes to the disciples, would be a miracle, a gift that would keep on giving and encouraging them as they led the growing church in the years to come. And speaking of these disciples, I love how Jesus uses the disciples in the execution of this miracle from beginning to end. And this is not always evident in John's version as he tells the miracle. But when you put the pieces together from the other gospel writers, you see how true this is. Jesus told the disciples to feed the people when they had nothing yet to give. Jesus told the disciples to look for food when Andrew brought the little lad to Jesus with his meager provisions, Jesus used the disciples 
to have the people recline and prepare for a meal. And it was the disciples that Jesus used to distribute the food to the people. And it was the disciples that Jesus used to gather up the excess. They were involved, though they didn't have to be, every stage of the execution of this miracle. And this is the mercy of Jesus to use these men as his instruments when their attitude was not even, at the outset, the best attitude to have. And Jesus easily could have kind of seen their unbelief at the outset and just sidelined all of them. You guys just go sit down. I'll handle this. And just watch what I do and feel terrible about your unbelief in me. And I will not use you in any way. No, he uses them. He does this miracle and involves them in the execution of this miracle at every step. And just imagine they're giving this food to each person and each person saying, thank you so much. Thank you. And it's from Jesus. I didn't make this. Jesus is doing this. And just all the back and forth and conversation and gratitude that the disciples got to be a part of. Jesus brought them in on all of that. And then even leaving each of the 12 disciples with a basket full of food for them to eat, not only on that day, but in the days to come. That's grace. And how much the disciples must have grown through this experience, learning that Jesus will not only use them, though their hearts are often plagued by doubts and unbelief, but also learning how Jesus will meet their own needs as they pour out themselves in service to others. And we can learn exactly the same things as we seek to be used by Jesus as we minister his goodness to others. Just in closing, I don't know about you, um, sometimes I read a Bible story and I wonder where I am in the story. Um, and I know we have to be very careful about doing that. But on one level, I do see myself in the disciples and their doubts, along with their desire to just send away the problem, send the people away because their needs are too much for us to address. So I see myself in the disciples and Jesus' love and grace toward them blesses me. But I also see myself in the barley biscuits and the tidbits of fish. Andrew looked at the biscuits and the fish of this little boy and says, what is this in the face of so great a need? What difference will this meager provision make? What good can this possibly do for so many people? Sometimes we might think the same thing about ourselves as an individual Christian or even as a local church, or even as the overall church in our culture today. Often the church can seem so small and so unimpressive compared to the massive needs of our culture and the darkness, the wickedness that prevails across our world. The world may look at us in the church and scoff at us and say, you're just a handful of biscuits and tidbits of fish. 
you guys will never amount to anything. In God's good providence, we've had a number of people here at Cornerstone move out of state, making us even fewer biscuits and fish than we were before left here. We are in California to face the needs of people around us in a state which is trying to lead the world and lead our country and pushing others into a more wicked direction than ever before. What difference can we make in this state? This passage shows us that, okay, maybe we are just a few barley biscuits and tidbits of fish, but we can be a mighty force in the hand of Jesus. And that Christ can do much with us if we are surrendered to him and willing to be used by him. Whatever we do, let's not underestimate how Christ can use us to bring about his good purposes on earth when we are surrendered to him, let's never underestimate what Christ will make of his church in the end when we stand before him as his perfected bride, resplendent in eternal glory. We think sometimes that we are few in number here, but one day we're, we who believe in Jesus are going to be gathered around the throne of God and we're going to see an uncountable number of redeemed souls from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping God and giving praise to Him. And in that moment, we will realize that we were just a tiny part of Jesus' greatest miracle of multiplication of all. And He's not finished performing that miracle. And He wants to use us to hold His name high to declare the good news of the gospel to others, call others to faith just as we have come to faith so that there can be added to our number those who are being saved. And let's pray and ask God to help us to do just that. Lord God, we thank you so much for a passage like this that leaves us with so much to be encouraged by, to be challenged by. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us as a congregation to just genuinely surrender ourselves into your hands. And though we're not much in and of ourselves, that we just take so much solace and encouragement from this story that you will receive what we offer to you and you will multiply our effectiveness and usefulness to you. And as you do that, Lord, we will give all the glory to you. If there's any in this room this morning, Lord, who's just They've never put their trust in you, Lord Jesus. 
May they, even just from this passage we've looked at today, see the insanity of putting their trust in anyone other than him. Jesus can feed 5,000 plus just like that. Anyone else they would want to put their trust in, including trusting themselves, they can't do that. You alone can do the kinds of things that you do in this passage. And yet you show such restraint when this crowd wants to grab you and take you and make you king before your time. Amazingly, you shrink from that because that's not the right way. And you knew that your hour was coming when you would die on a cross to shed your blood, to bring atonement to those whom you would save. What a savior of such power you are and of such beautiful, loving restraint. So this morning we yield to you and acknowledge you as our king and we're giving you, Lord, our permission and proclaiming your every right to be exactly the king that you want to be to us. And we will yield to you and let you lead and use us as you deem best. And we pray this prayer to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,